Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers and be jumping at Countrywide, the politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Hello, welcome to Countrywide. My name is Megan Hughes. Coming up today, calls are getting louder to ramp up Australia's biosecurity practices this week. But the question remains, who is going to pay? And I'll also take you to the Northern Territory, where a team is chasing down an endangered fish species, all in the name of research. Because it is such an important species, so the Northern Territory in Northern Australia is home to a lot of species, which elsewhere in the world, um, the numbers have come down. And there's lots of information gaps. But first today, I'm going to take you to the East Coast because this is where the flood situation is continuing in New South Wales, in Victoria and in Tasmania as well. Rural areas around Forbes have faced ongoing isolation or the threat of isolation due to the floodwaters for a week and people have been ordered to evacuate from the central western New South Wales town. Crops have been inundated and there's also reports of livestock losses. Reporter Hamish Cole has been following this situation. He joins me now from Forbes. Hamish, looking at the situation widely across New South Wales, where are the worst affected areas? So it's really the main areas of concern are in and around Forbes and then in the Riverina region where overnight they saw quite a lot of rain between 20 and 40 mils. So there's 73 uh, emergency warning, sorry, 30, 73 uh, flood warnings and then nine emergency evacuation orders, most of those in and around uh, Forbes and the Riverina for regional New South Wales. So they're the real areas of concern as this, this flood water continues to move downstream and as we head across the weekend places like Condoblin and Uabalong in the central west that's also an area of concern for the for the coming days. And obviously a lot of these are happening in towns but what are you hearing in quite rural areas are you hearing anything from farmers at the moment? Yeah, this is just a, the latest in a long line of floods that they've had that will have a damaging impact on those crops. You know, a lot of people, after their winter crop got wasn't able to be planted or they're expecting it'll be flooded out, the, a lot of people were pinning their hopes on a summer crop. Now the discussion is really turning to whether they'll even be able to get a summer crop in and we'll just have to miss an entire season. So it, it's having quite a quite a large effect and... It just seems to be a constant uh, constant flow of rain. Last week, we had a, a major flooding event across most of inland New South Wales. And the weather forecast for next week is predicting that we could see the worst rainfall that we've seen all year as well. So just no let up for, for farmers, particularly those cropping uh, in and around the, the Central West and Riverina. They're where they're getting really hard, hardly hit in the, the last couple of weeks and months. Talking there about cropping, but has there been any indication of livestock losses in these areas? With the, the moving of livestock, we, we have heard reports of uh, lambs and whatnot, because some people are still going through that lambing process. Uh, you know, s- small losses uh, is what we're hearing so far, which is quite con- uh, 
uh, quite surprising considering the amount of rainfall we've seen. Uh, but the main concern does seem to be about cropping, but uh, some people have, have a small livestock losses so far. But as we head into next week, around Wednesday, a, a big front is expected to arrive. And uh, I think there's going to be a lot of preparation uh, for, that, for that rain event with livestock being moved to, to higher ground because the Bureau, the early predictions are as it could be some of the worst rain we've seen so far. And as you said earlier, these communities, it just seems like they've just been constantly inundated at the moment. That's the thing. We're in Forbes and, you know, it was the same story last year in November. And as a result, a lot of people, that's why those evacuation orders aren't re- really being heeded by people because they're just so used to it now. They're prepared. They're ready to go for it. But it's just been a, a constant stream of uh, flood warnings and evacuations. So that is one of the concerns for the SES that people are starting to become a little bit complacent. But it just has been with this third La Nina in a row. It's been constant this rainfall and there's no real signs of it letting up up until really December and early January. Well, Hamish, I hope that you stay safe out there and the same for the communities impacted as well. Thanks for having me. Cheers. (laughs) That was reporter Hamish Coles reporting there from Forbes. Heading to Victoria now, residents are experiencing a one-in-200-year flood event. River levels are flooding city centres and cutting off communities. In central Victoria, floats and boats have been called to help evacuate horses from a stud. Yulong Stud has been pleading for help um, for anyone who can come out and assist with this evacuation. Troy Stevens from the stud says it's a dire situation. Yeah, look, it's a, it's a pretty devastating emergency. So if anyone has any, um, if anyone has any boats, horse floats, um, anything, um, anyone's horse savvy and, and can lend a, lend a hand, it'll be greatly appreciated. And so, how many horses do you think you, you need to be able to evacuate? Uh, look, it could be close to, to two hundred um, at this stage off off the one farm. We've um, we've we've got all the horses to to safety at. Um, at our Tolarook uh, farm, and um, yes, uh, Mangalore, if anyone has any boats or um, horse floats, that'd be greatly appreciated. So, you physically need boats to even move some of these horses? Yes, yes, to get out to them. Um, the, the waters are, are certainly still coming up a, a lot. Can you paint a picture? How, how sort of dire is the situation there in terms of the water? Uh, what can you tell us? Look, it's pretty swift, it's come up really high. It's sort of um, it's jumped on us. We didn't think it would get this high and it's just a matter of trying to get as many horses to safety as we can now. And do you, do you worry about the safety of some of your horses? Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, there could be a possibility we, we lose horses in this. Um, yeah, it, it, it's very bad. And what are these horses worth? We're, we're talking about sort of prime livestock here, aren't we? Yeah, that, that's right. They're, um, they're, they're top end, but whether they're worth um, $500 or, or $500,000, we treat them and it's just a matter of trying to get as many safety as possible. And and what's the scene like in terms of your workers? How many people are on hand? Uh, all all hands on deck. It's um and and a lot of locals too. So um yes. Yeah, so, look, if anyone has a has a small boat or um, a horse float, it'd be greatly appreciated. Yeah. And how long do you think you're going to be under threat for? How quickly do you need these things, Troy? Uh, as soon as possible. Um, we we need. 
need them three hours ago. That was Troy Stevens there from Yulong Stud speaking with Warwick Long. Meanwhile, in Western Victoria, hearing a lot of reports of crop damage, in particular lentil crops, they've been suffering from critical water logging. And that's because there's been about two months worth of wet conditions in that particular area. And they're the, the crop itself is quite notoriously ill-equipped to deal with these wet conditions, which means losses are already at more than 50% of paddocks in some of these areas. Marty Colbert from NIL has been using his drone to assess the impact of this waterlogging, and he spoke with rural reporter Angus Furley. Yeah, I put the drone up last week just as a bit of a quick exercise. I was out mapping some other biomass jobs. And the particular paddock that I've droned and is on Twitter, I drive past that at 100 kilometres an hour every second day. And I could see the damage in there, the water logging. I thought I'd put the drone up. As soon as I put the drone up, it's like, oh, there's a lot more there. And then I used the mapping program to, to map it and determine the areas. And uh, I was quite surprised looking back through the last time I droned it, I'd written off, this is only a small paddock, I'd written off two hectares as waterlogged and gone and uh, last week when I put it up that area has gone to 22 hectares so a tenfold increase and the last lot of damage from the last lot of rain hasn't shown up so I'll go back out again in a couple of days and drain it again and I know it's going to be more than 22 hectares it could be 32 hectares it could be three quarters of the paddock. Okay so you were using that uh, vegetation imagery technology to assess how much vegetation had lost and then sort of try and relate that to lost yield? Yeah, that's right. So the raw images are processed through a subscription program I use and it groups all the indices together and develops a map out of that and then it quite accurately attributes an area to that group of indices and then that gives you the uh, damaged area. And unfortunately with lentils, uh, due to their weak nature, once they get waterlogged, rarely it's near on impossible for them to come back with a, uh, a recovery phase. They're just gone. And it's pretty stark, isn't it, Marty? The worst areas, they're, they're essentially dead. Yeah, they're essentially dead, and they would have started to die back in the middle of September, and you know, everyone who's ever grown lentils know they, they're very prone to waterlogging, and you sort of you live with that and go, oh, well, you take the good with the bad, but... When it starts to get to 10 to 15% of your, your area and, and now it's surpassed that, it, it's quite a concern. And in terms of the lentil crop, it, there really is a stark contrast there, isn't there? Because it seems that they're either waterlogged and, and dead or dying, or if they're not waterlogged, they look fantastic. Yeah, so that sort of gets to the little side project I did the other day without actually having set foot in the paddock, attributing a yield across it. Pretty easy to do, but I wouldn't recommend it as a way of physically 100% determining what your probable yield was going to be, but if we were to say that the best part of the paddock was going to yield three tonne the hectare and the uh, the worst sections were going to be zero because they definitely are not going to yield, and then pro rata that across the uh, attributed areas derived by the program can come out with a an approximate potential yield which uh, I believe the other day it had knocked it down as a potential three to uh, 1.2. So easily say that 50% of the, the yield is gone.
That was Marty Colbert from Nell speaking there with Angus Verley. Heading away from the east coast now and down to Tasmania, evacuation orders have been given for parts of the north as floodwater poses threats to lives. Now, for farmers in this area, they're finding their properties underwater after days of relentless rain. Reporter Erin Cooper has been speaking with some of these property owners across the affected area, starting with potato grower Nathan Richardson. Yeah, we've got a freshly planted paddock of potatoes. Uh, it's only been in the ground just a, a week or so. And, uh, yeah, look, it's, it's going to be some weeks before we can attempt to get on that field or, or see the consequences of, of damage of that. Well, yeah, Nathan, what does that mean? Having, I mean, 100 mils of rain is still a lot of rain. <laughs> it, it's not 300, but it's it still is, a lot of yeah. rain. Um, what does that mean for your potato crop, do you think? Well, you know, they're like us. They can't breathe underwater. And, uh, you know, they're, they're sitting in a row. Um, you know, whether there's been some uh, leaching, it's going to be hard to tell at this stage. Uh, and then you get seed rot, decay and, and suffocation, ultimately, and uh, poor germination, poor yield. Poor crop, no money. Um, yeah, less, less, uh, less for everyone. Really, harvesting and, and transporting, and, and uh, from the people I spoke to yesterday, it's going to be a matter of weeks before we know the full extent uh, for those crops that are uh, in the ground and yet to be planted. Uh, so, from an industry point of view, it's 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 going to be it's going to be bad. Uh, because it's, there is going to be a lag effect in uh, what we experienced yesterday and, and uh, the consequences of, um, you know, whether you can remediate paddocks. Guns Plains has copped some of the worst of the rain, with farmer there Gary Carpenter saying the area more closely resembled Sydney Harbour than paddocks. Gary hasn't been able to reach his farm since yesterday. Well, Aaron, I'm uh, unable to get there this morning, so Clinton and the guys in the planes are locked in there. So we have no access to the, to Guns Plains this morning, and uh, I doubt whether we'll have access much before lunchtime. And unfortunately, I'm not able to get hold of, of uh, the staff up on the farm. The mobile service is not too good in certain areas. So, uh, But I can see on the monitor, Aaron, that the cows are still being milked because everything's automatic. So, oh, I was going to say, I was going to ask you about your cows. Somewhere. <laughs> they're they're looking like they are in a good spot, or or when you moved them to to higher ground, did that work the first time? No, uh, the farm is split by the river, and we have where where the milking stock are, they're safe. Where the dry stock are, that they wasn't. We moved them Wednesday with the early warning, thinking they would be on the highest part of the farm. Unfortunately, the river broke out um, in a different section and circled them. And while I was on one side of the river, then we was closed in. And so the neighbours moved them again for me yesterday. And then 7.30 last night, uh, we only had the road left and the neighbours' property to move to. And they moved them again around 7.30, 8 o'clock last night. So I imagine one farm was basically completely underwater um, for Matton and uh, Andrew. They were the ones that done all the work in the wet. Oh, I'm so glad someone rallied together to, to help you out there. Um, you've obviously been at that property for a while and you've seen floods before, but how does this one compare? Yeah, look, I think I'm not sure with the rainfall. I reckon it'd be anywhere from 200 to, to 250 or 260 mils in that short period. And it, it depended where you was in the plains when I went in yesterday morning on the northern end. It was absolutely saturated and, and water everywhere. And on one of the properties up the southern end where I went and checked with my cattle, um, we might have only had 80 mil up that end. So 
it really varied. That story there from Aaron Cooper. From the paddock to the plate, countrywide on ABC Radio. You're listening to Countrywide. Thank you so much for your company. My name is Megan Hughes. Now, moving away um, from the devastating floods that are hitting the East Coast and Tasmania at the moment, let's have a chat about biosecurity. Now, it's estimated an outbreak of lumpy skin disease would cost Australia's farming sector more than $7 billion in its first year if it were to reach Australia. Now, if you're not, um, if you haven't heard of this virus, there's been a lot of talk about it recently. It's carried by biting insects like mozzies and it affects cattle and buffalo and it's quite an obvious one if you've seen the pictures of the the pox kind of marks on their skin and it was found in Indonesia early this year and there are a lot of people in northern Australia who feel it's a matter of when not if it'll get to Australia but the Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt completely disagrees and he has unveiled this week the government's national action plan for lumpy skin disease and he explains what it is to Matt Bran. Yeah, it's a bit of a tricky one, isn't it, Matt? Because it doesn't really matter in some ways how big you build a wall around Australia. You can't necessarily stop mosquitoes being brought in by cyclones. Um, and that's why the risk of a lumpy skin disease outbreak in Australia, particularly in our north, uh, is higher even than a risk of a foot and mouth disease outbreak. Um, the most recent sort of analysis we had done showed that there's about a 28% risk of a lumpy skin outbreak in Australia at some point over the next five years. And that compares to about a 12% risk for foot and mouth disease. So while there's been all that discussion in the community about foot and mouth disease, and that obviously would be devastating, a lumpy skin disease outbreak is even more likely. And that's why we've got to take steps like this plan. In terms of prevention, yeah, yeah, prevent prevention um, I guess the best thing that we can be doing uh, is supporting our friends in Indonesia. Uh, and that's what we've been trying to do since taking office. Uh, obviously, the outbreak of lumpy skin in Indonesia occurred before we were elected. Uh, but uh, I think it's come to the fore with the foot and mouth disease getting to Bali as well. Uh, but we have already delivered over 400,000 uh, vaccinations for lumpy skin disease uh, to Indonesia, and they have been distributed around the country. Uh, similarly, we've already donated uh, around a million vaccines for foot and mouth disease, which are being distributed. Uh, but trying to work with them, we've, we've also uh, trained about 300 Indonesian vets and other personnel about vaccination programs, diagnosis and all those kind of things. Does that prevent it, though, or delay it? Well... Certainly our plan uh, and our hope is that that prevents it. You know, we want to do everything possible to keep that di these, yeah. both these diseases out of Australia um, because we know that Because be cattle producers that I speak to in the north feel it's inevitable, mm. lumpy skin disease. Mm. Do you not sign up to that? No, I don't think it is. Uh, I mean, it's certainly going to be take a lot of hard work to keep it out. That was Federal Ag Minister Murray Watt speaking there. Keeping with this theme of biosecurity for a little bit longer... Because this week, a federal parliamentary committee has been looking at biosecurity preparedness this week. One of the hearings was in Rockhampton in central Queensland, which is where I'm based as a rural reporter. And a lot of the people giving submissions talked about the importance of increasing traceability in this industry. So being able to trace individual animals right through the supply chain, essentially to your plate. And there was also hearings in Newcastle and in Canberra, and I've been listening in. And the question remains, though, that if we're going to increase Australia's biosecurity, who is actually going to pay for this? 
One of the things clear from the statements uh, that have been made is that an incursion like foot and mouth disease or lumpy skin disease, as you heard, would have a devastating impact on the agricultural industry, but also food security. Markets would essentially close completely if FMD came. So it doesn't matter if it's pasteurised, homogenised, butters, creams, everything, gone. And the science says that it would be safe if it were pasteurised, but unfortunately, as soon as we lose our FMD-free status, we would lose all our trade. That was Joe Coombe from Australian Dairy Farmers. But if industry and government are going to ramp up their security processes, who is going to pay for it? Australian Pork Limited CEO Margot Andre wants to see state governments better resourced. Look, Senator, I do have to give a shout-out to the states because they have worked very closely with us on African swine fever and Japanese encephalitis virus. But the reality is we were lucky that we were the only industry impacted at that time. They do probably need some more resources. They need some more support. We do say biosecurity is one of the number one priorities. Ms Andre is also calling for renewed federal funding for feral pig eradication. Well, big shout-out. I'd like the program funded further. It's only funded till June 20. 23, so okay. having that program funded more. We've been taking what, just, this approach... Just for our... What, what program is that so exactly? the National Feral Pig Coordinator Program. Okay. And, and how much money is that? Um, it was $1.4 million over two, three years. Right, okay. We'd love that refunded. The Senate committee also raised the question of a container levy. The idea is for a tax on all imported containers into Australia to pay for biosecurity measures. It's been floated before but never mandated. National Farmers Federation CEO Tony Ma was questioned in the session about the potential for the scheme. The risk creators need to take a lead role in this. Um, the, any funding should be directed at the risk and targeted to the highest risk. We do think that there is uh, a role for industry, um, but broader than that, there is a role for the beneficiaries, the broader community. Um, A good, strong, reliable, robust biosecurity system has a public benefit, a clear public benefit, Mm -hmm. and that we we do think that the community uh, has a willingness, but also a responsibility to maintain that biosecurity status. Why do you think previous attempts to institute a levy failed? I think, to be honest, Senator, it, uh, there was some detail around how it might be uh, operationalised um, and perhaps more discussion on the um, direction of the funding towards the risk creator uh, rather than any funding going into consolidated revenue. Um, So more identification of the risks, what funding was going to be directed towards those risks and who would pay. Animal Health Australia CEO Kathleen Plowman wants to see long-term biosecurity funding secured while the nation's focus is on this issue. I do believe that what we have in place now, we need to increase our investment. If anything, we need to double it, and that includes uh, having uh, new money, and also money from non-government sources. We need different types of investments, uh, whether that's from our retail sectors, from private business, uh, from philanthropic organisations as well. Um, We need to take a different look at this and how we're going to invest, and that really comes down to having a shared responsibility in this. In Australian Dairy Farmers' submission, Justin Tui detailed their plans to restructure a levy to allow it to pay for proactive biosecurity measures, not just reactive. 
It's our job to convince the dairy farmers themselves that that's a good option, and it's our job to find out what level we put that levy at. But the importance of that would be to help us uh, fund these sorts of initiatives around awareness, uh, you know, get an extension officers out there, work with Dairy Australia to, um, to ensure that the on-farm practices are done to assist perhaps with the adoption, the, the implementation of certain things like barrier fencing. Uh, we need also to work on the tankers coming in and out and other vehicles in and out of the properties and be able to decontaminate at that point. Who, who has responsibility for that on a daily basis? They're the sorts of things we, we'd be looking at funding. Ms Plowman vocalised a point a lot of stakeholders raised during the submissions, that it's time to act now. Part of the problem previously is because um, there was this complacency, everyone was busy on, you know, we'll get to it. But at the moment we've got everyone's attention, so let's get them to the table. We know where the risks, the gaps, etc. the National Biosecurity, all the other previous reviews. It's not like we have to discuss it again. Sure. Now it's time to design it. Animal Health Australia CEO Kathleen Plowman finishing that report. Countrywide, the voice of regional Australia on ABC Radio. Finally today, a commercial fishing boat is getting ready to leave Darwin and spend two weeks trying to catch an endangered species. It's all in the name of research, don't worry. Scientists are on board and they're teaming up with professional fishers to try and catch tag and learn more about sawfish. Catherine Winchester from the NT Seafood Council runs through their plan. So this mission is very exciting for us. We've got a commercial fishing um, vessel heading out out of season to its fishing grounds um, and a little bit beyond its fishing grounds with scientists to try and catch what they normally try to avoid, which is the um, globally significant species sawfish, um, which is protected um, and endangered in some parts of the world. And so why are you doing this? <laughs> because it is such an important species. So the Northern Territory in Northern Australia is home to a lot of species, which elsewhere in the world um, the numbers have come down. And there's lots of information gaps. So for us as an industry interacting with such an important species, we need to be confident and sure that our interactions aren't having a negative impact on its population. So to fill some of the information gaps, we're trying to get some satellite tags on some adult sawfish to actually understand where do they go. Not many people know, do they go offshore, how long for? So we're hoping to um, get a tag on some uh, adult sawfish and find out exactly where do they go. And from the fishers that you've spoken to and interviewed as part of this process, uh, what sort of interactions have they had with this species? I know it's something they try to avoid, but no doubt it, it's happened over the years. Oh, it definitely has happened. So some of the fishers um, we're talking to started fishing in, like when fishing commercially up here just started, so in like the early 70s and even the late 60s. And so initially those interactions where the species wasn't protected or people weren't aware of their vulnerable um, or the, the vulnerability of these species, and they would take the sawfish, so sawfish food, the rostrum was also collected as a trophy. Um, and some of the fishermen would say because these animals would get so big that they were the thing that was feared more than crocodiles out there for the barramundi fishing. So uh, avoiding sawfish from a safety perspective was happening early on. But then later on the laws changed to protect the species where you can no longer take uh, or capture the species. And so from there on the industry's really been about 
um, reporting their interactions with the species, but also um, avoiding them. So it takes a lot of time when you get things in your net that you don't want because you have to take them out. And when they've got um, a rostrum or, I guess, the nose of the sawfish, which is can be quite long and looks a bit like a chainsaw with all of its teeth sticking out, that connected in a net takes even longer than it does to get rid of a fish species that you don't want that might be in your net. So, um, yeah, the fishermen um, uh, have a lot of knowledge with regards to times of years or particular areas um, or habitats where they just don't want to go fishing because the interaction levels might be too high. With this research, is there... Are there any anxieties about what it might find and what reflection that might have on the commercial fishing industry? Um, look, but getting that information is so important. Whatever the information is, we need to understand that. The more we know, the better we can work um, with um, management for these species going forwards. So um, there isn't any information that's bad. It's actually about collecting that information, understanding it better um, and making sure that we use that information to manage the species going forward. That was Catherine Winchester from the NT Seafood Council talking there to Matt Brown. And that's it for Countrywide. And you can hear all of these stories and more at abc.net.au slash rural. I'm Megan Hughes. Goodbye for now.